You are now listening to the May 21st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. It's June Park from Near My God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. When do you feel the need for the Lord? Many will say in times of hardship, of need, of sadness, and of distress. Of course all those are true. We need the Lord in times of hardship, sadness, and distress. But what about in times of joy and happiness? Do we still need the Lord? If we only think of the Lord as the one who fills our need, then we may not feel the need for Him during times of joy and happiness. However, if we realize that the Lord is our Father and our everything, then we will always try to be with the Lord and want Him to always be with us. If someone asks, when do you need the Lord? Our answer will be, I always need Him. There is a hymn where a woman makes this confession. She confesses that she needs the Lord every hour. Let's listen to the hymn for a moment. I need Thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like Thine and peace afford. I need Thee, oh, I need Thee. Every hour I need Thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee. I need We are all familiar with this hymn. It's called, I Need Thee Every Hour. A woman named Anne Hawkes wrote this hymn. Here is the first verse. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh I need thee, that every hour I need thee. Oh bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. The verse, I need thee every hour, really moved me. In what situation did she write this hymn? It might be a different situation than what you're thinking. Let's find out through a drama. Anne Hawkins was born in New York in 1835, and she lived a comfortable life since she was young. Her family was at peace and she lacked nothing. She accepted Jesus as her Savior at an early age and was saved. She was always at peace in the Lord. When she was 14 years old, her poems began to be published in newspapers and she realized that she had a talent in writing. 
She loved Jesus, and ever since she was young, she enjoyed writing hymnal poems. When she was 24 years old, she married a man named Charles Hawkes and gave birth to three children. She lived a blessed life. Then something happened when she was 37 years old. Dear, have a blessed day in the Lord. Yes, I hope you have a blessed day as well in the Lord. I'll come home early today. Children, your father is leaving for work. Say goodbye to him. Goodbye, father. Do well in school today. I'll see you in the evening. After her husband left, Anne got her children ready for school. We'll be back from school soon. We love you. Yes, please be safe. I love you too. After her husband and children left, Anne sat by the window and drank tea. Ah, today's tea is exceptionally good. The sun is shining so brightly. Will heaven feel like this? Everything is such a joy. Anne was having a wonderful day, and she felt like everything was God's blessing. She began to have overwhelming gratitude and couldn't contain it. Lord, thank you so much. Every single thing is a blessing from you. Ever since I was young until now, as a mother of three children, my life has been under your protection without any problems. You have allowed me to have continual days of happiness. Oh Lord, please continue to walk with me like this. Anne gave a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord as she was so thankful about everything. She momentarily put aside her housework. As she felt the warm sunshine by the window, she felt the warm presence of the Lord. Oh Lord, I love this feeling. Please stay with me. Ah, I should write about my feelings in a poem. I need thee every hour. Most gracious Lord, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. Anne wrote a poem about the overwhelming happiness she felt. Her poem was shared with Pastor Robert Laurie at her church. He added a chorus to the poem and made a melody, and it became a hymn. A praise leader of the Moody Evangelical Revival named Ira Sankey. Introduced this hymn, and it was loved by many. The reason why the people loved this hymn was because, in the midst of their hardship, they can confess that they only desire the Lord and they need Him every hour. However, Anne didn't understand such a reaction. How strange! Why are so many people moved by this hymn? I didn't write this hymn in times of hardship. But in a time of great joy, how can those people in hardship gain strength through this poem? I can't understand. Anne couldn't understand why the hymn she wrote gave strength to those people who were experiencing hardship. After sixteen years had passed since she wrote the hymnal poem, she was able to experience why the poem gave strength to those going through hardship. 
her beloved husband passed away. <laughs> Dear, how can you just leave me here? <laughs> I'm not ready to let you go. <laughs> Anne's husband was no longer a part of her peaceful and loving family, and Anne suffered greatly at his loss. However, she couldn't remain in the suffering of her reality. She began to seek the Lord. Lord, I need you. I need you every hour. Lord, I'm going before you. Please, pour your grace upon me. Sixteen years after she wrote the hymnal poem called I Need Thee Every Hour, she returned to her poem and made the same confession. She realized that the Lord who knows everything allowed her to write this confession long ago and that she would make that same confession today. She lived alone for 30 more years and declared that she needs the Lord every hour. Towards the end of her life, she gave the following testimony. It took a long time for me to completely realize the meaning of the hymnal poem I wrote. At first, I couldn't understand why this poem moved so many people. However, after I experienced hardship and reality sank in, I was able to know. The poem I wrote during my time of sweetness and peace contained the power of the Lord's comfort. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. There is no true eternal joy besides the Lord. Only in the Lord can we gain all eternal things. Anne Hawkes realized this. She depended on the Lord every hour and wrote over 400 hymnal poems during her entire life. When do we need the Lord? In times of joy, hardship, happiness, and sadness? We don't only need the Lord in specific times, but we always need Him every hour. I hope this confession will always be within us. We'll end near my God to thee. Goodbye. Stay.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Too Good to Be True. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. As we're going into the book of Acts and we're continuing chapter 9, we read about something that is too good to be to believe and It's just too good to be true, and it's kind of hard to believe, but like our story, it really happened. The final verses of chapter 9 move back to Peter's ministry. So in chapter 9, we've had uh, uh, this beautiful discussion you guys saw and studied about last time about Paul's conversion. He went from Saul to Paul, And I mean, God saved him in this crazy supernatural way. And so now the ministry goes back to the apostle Peter and what Peter is doing. And so we pick it up in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, we don't know anything about Peter's missionary journeys, really, you guys. The only thing we know is that he took his wife along with him. We know that because at one point, the apostle Paul asks, when he's writing the letter of Corinthians, he says, don't we have the right to bring a Christian wife with us as the other disciples and the Lord's brothers and Peter? 
So we understand that Peter brought his wife along on the missionary journeys. And you know what this tells me? I think it's cool when a couple can serve the Lord together. How about you? It's neat when we can serve. I don't care. Any way that you can serve the Lord together, it's cool. I mean, not everybody's going to be serving like Leslie, me, or, or, you know, in some teaching way. But, you know, however you serve, doing it together is cool. Because you're one, and you're serving the Lord that way. So, I mean, here it goes, way back to apostolic times. Now, I noticed in chapter 9 that believers have four names. There's four names for Jesus' followers here. And we saw the first one in verse 32. Uh, Here there are among them all he came to the saints who lived at Leda. Here in the book of of Acts and chapter 9, believers are referred to, I looked as disciples. Mathetes is the word in Greek. Disciples. A disciple is, and that's like one, two, three, four, five, six times in chapter nine. We're disciples. So a disciple is a learner, right? And we're learning from our teachers, like from Peter they were learning at this point. And we're also learning from Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now, you got to understand that we're disciples of Jesus, but Jesus uses people to teach us about himself. You follow? I mean, what I've learned, most of what I've learned about the Lord, I have been taught by someone else. I mean, really, the Holy Spirit hasn't spoke to me in an audible voice. I have, you know, you learn how to hear from the Lord, right, guys? But I don't, I need help understanding the scripture. And I have no problem when I prepare to teach to listen or read what somebody else has said, because I think that's smart. If they're smarter than me, I want to know how they interpret the scripture. And then, of course, the Lord will show you, well, is that what you want to share? And sometimes, was that even right? Disciples, mathetes, were also referred to in Acts chapter 9 as brothers. Adelphos, say that. Adelphos. That word even sounds brotherly. And it takes into account sisters. <laughs> it's brethren is how it's uh, translated in, in some translations. It, it includes brothers and sisters. And that's a family term, isn't it? I've, I think we're always so used to formal terms, disciples. But we're brothers and sisters, I mean, look at the people, you know, you don't have to look at out of the corner of your eye. The people on either side of you, in front of you, and you can't see the ones behind you. They're your brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're family and every family has its problems, right? Yes. And you're thinking of who that person is. Yes. And it's not always the same person. But every family loves one another. I know our kids, you know, as they were growing up, they would knock heads. But if you, somebody touched one of them, you had the other two to deal with. And that's the way it should be with us, brothers and sisters. We may have our squabbles. As we grow in the Lord, we should have less and less of that, right? 
But somebody touches you, they have all of us to deal with. One touches you, we stand up for one another. We're not critical all the time. We want to be as functional as we can. And when I was growing up, uh, there was a generation, the older, like my grandparents' generation, would call each each other like, Brother Martin, Sister Martin, Brother this, Brother Smith, Sister, you know, Hanson. And I mean, that's, Archaic, I know, but I think it's cool, don't you? I think it was still, I wish it was still in, in vogue. I think it, it would be cool if that was still something that, that people do. And then I read in this same chapter that uh, at one time in verse 31, we're called the church, ecclesia, ecclesia. Now, we're different than the synagogue, Sunage. We're different than the synagogue. The word synagogue for where the Jews gather means to come together. Ecclesia. Ecclesia actually means the called out. To be ecclesia means you're not all gathered together, but you're moving out. And isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? It's not just all us, let's huddle together, us against the world, but instead we've got this gospel of Jesus and we are sending that out and we're called out, going to all the world, amen? So we're the called out ones. So disciples, brothers and sisters, the church, and then what we're seeing right here in front of us in verse 13, I'm, I'm rather verse 32, it's in 13 as well. We see uh, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Leda. Saints who lived at Leda. Uh, four times in this chapter. The word calling believers saints is used only four times. The book of Acts three times is in chapter nine. The saints. Now, if you came from probably a Catholic background, even an Episcopal uh, background, your idea of a saint Maybe somebody, and, and others of us, is somebody who, who you would picture in a stained glass window, right? Or a church would be named after. St. Mark's, uh, St. John, St. <laughs> <Saint> Jude's, St. <laughs> Mary's. So what has happened was this term referring to believers has been uh, tweaked. We are all saints. In verse 33, it says, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Now, Luke is a doctor. Luke is writing Acts. And so Luke is always interested in medical stuff and those kind of details. In the Gospel of Luke, you'll, you'll see him talk about that kind of thing, especially when people are healed. Well, here is a man that Luke, it's interesting and important to Luke that this man has been paralyzed for how many years? 
eight years. How he was paralyzed, we're not told. Maybe he had a stroke and he moved. Maybe he fell and broke his neck. We're not, we don't know how that happened. But for eight long years, no therapy, no one has ever been able to help this guy. He is simply, if he goes anywhere, he's got to be carried there. He's got a bed. That's what we know. Now, there are some specific details that we can infer or that are directly given to us. But one thing I can see is that uh, Peter sought him out. Aeneas did not try to find Peter. Aeneas was bedridden. That's kind of a no-brainer. Aeneas had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas' case was hopeless. And we can't tell for sure whether or not he was a believer or he just knew something about Jesus. Verse 34 says, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Just as an aside, this is one of every parent's favorite verses. We're not told whether Aeneas was a believer or that he knew something about Jesus, as I said, but what we do know is this. His faith is not mentioned anywhere. What's going to happen is not a result of his faith. Faith is important. Faith is important in healing and all, but I just want you to know that we're not healed always because of our faith. He had no faith, at least that we hear of. And then, then it's not mentioned that he had any faith in Peter. It wasn't like in Jerusalem, Peter was healing people and, you know, people might have had some faith in Peter's ministry. He didn't even know Peter, so he didn't have faith in himself or in Peter. But we do know that it, is that Peter's words directed him to Jesus, the only one who could help him. Verse 34, and immediately he arose. What we don't see in the Greek is as, as Peter was saying, he was saying, um, uh, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise up. And as Peter is saying the words, this miracle is happening and Aeneas is standing up. So it's like just happening immediately. Now, it's obvious that this miracle is supposed to, both that we're going to read of, it's supposed to mirror uh, the miracle of Jesus. This one mirrors the, mirror, the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, right? Jesus finds somebody out of many others. He picks somebody. Uh, he heals them and uh, uses basically the same words Rise up and take your bed and walk. Remember? That's talked about in John chapter 5. But there are some very important differences. When Peter healed Aeneas, he was just the instrument God used to do the healing. When Jesus performed the same miracle, it was in his own name and authority. Jesus simply said to the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, get up, take your bed and walk. But Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. 
rise and make your bed. You see, it was, Peter was sure that it, everybody knew it was through Jesus Christ. But when Jesus healed, he healed independently. He needed no one else's authority, right? He didn't heal in somebody else's name. He just said the words and the people were healed. Uh, someone has said he didn't use the language of faith, but of omnipotence. He said the word. Peter, you know, it was either praying or going to Jesus or in Jesus' name. Jesus just said it. And the result was in verses 34 and 35. Um, and the results, verse 35, and all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. The, the point is eight years. There's no fooling people. This guy was just not, you know, he had a cold and he was healed. He wasn't just sick for six months. Eight year is eight, being healed of a healing somebody that has been sick for eight years is very convincing, right? That's the whole point. We are going to take the worst case here. We're going to heal it to the Lord Jesus' glory. And the result was people believed. It says, it says they turned to the Lord. The church grew exponentially. Peter was always careful to put uh, the glory to Jesus. And in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up, take your bed and walk. It was, it was very significant and people believed. Now, Luke takes us nine miles away to the city of Joppa, another place where Philip had planted another church. So here we see Philip's ministry. You know, he's not mentioned, but if you do a little digging, you say, oh, wow, look at that man faithfully evangelizing and what God does. So in verse 36, it says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translates means Dorcas. Gazelle, by the way. The word Tabitha or Dorcas means gazelle. Now the city of Joppa had quite an impressive history. It was a great harbor until... Um, the, the, the city of Caesarea was built and an even bigger harbor was built there. The cedars from Lebanon were rafted down uh, to Joppa and then taken to uh, build Solomon's palace and the temple. Cedars from Lebanon were, were rafted down again for the, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after the exiles came back. And now Joppa is going to be the place where God chooses to perform the greatest miracle performed in the history of the church up to this time and recorded in the book of Acts. Look at verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. The Greek says compassionateness. Com My spell check didn't exactly know what that word was. Compassionateness. She's full of good works. She continually, our Greek says, she continually was doing this. 
some of you would appreciate this. She's been called a great combination of Mary and Martha. You know, a godly Martha working with a Mary, compassionate, full of good works. Verse 37 says, in those days, she became ill and died. One, one old Bible commentary, the commentator says, and probably tongue in cheek, she died? How was that? There are some people whom we almost wish would die and die they will not. And others whom we want to live and always they wither and die. (laughs) You can relate to that. Why do some people live forever and their pains and the people that ought to live, they die? Well, you could say about this about uh, Dorcas. Um, So while Peter is in Lydda, and Dorcas dies, and the believers in Joppa sent for Peter. They sent two men to go that three-hour walk to Lida and get Peter and see if there's something that Peter could do. Now, I think maybe in the back of their minds was the miracles that they had heard Peter had performed in Jerusalem, and maybe Jesus' words when he told his disciples, he said to his disciples, that in his name, they would heal the sick. They would raise the dead. They would heal, cleanse the lepers. So maybe they heard that. Maybe they remembered that. But Peter leaves one church. Think about this. He leaves the church in Lida just rejoicing, right, over this man's healing. Church is just throwing a party. But then he gets the bad news. And so he has to leave this one exciting thing, and now he's going to go to a church that's just brokenhearted and sad. That's what ministry is like. That's what it's like for us, isn't it? I know for me and others that I serve with, we'll, we'll get the news that, oh, somebody, they, they finally were able to, to have a child or, or look, a, a baby was just born or somebody was healed, and then we'll get the sad news that somebody has just died. How do you do that? You're jerked around. It all happens within four hours. How do you do that? It takes a toll on. And so Peter is, is, okay, we're leaving the party, and now we're going to go to the funeral. One hour you're rejoicing. uh, The other hour you're, you're in sorrow. Verse 37, when they had washed her, it talks about how they were handling Dorcas's body. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Verse 38, and since Leda, Leda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Verse 39, so Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him up to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Now, the widows are mentioned here because the widows were well organized by this time in every church. Why was that? Who was in charge initially of, of getting that whole situation with the widows taken care of in Jerusalem? 
Phil, well, it was that whole group of deacons, Philip would be included in that. So that was established. You could always tell who a widow was because they wore clothes. It was different than everybody else. The clothes they wore was kind of more associated with the poorer class of people. So apparently, Dorcas made clothes for these poor widows. Maybe she made nicer stuff, you know? And they wearing the old widow's garments. And so they're showing her, the, showing Peter what she had done. You know, what she had done for them seemed even more valuable to them now that she was gone. Has that ever happened to you guys? You take for granted something. And then when somebody is gone, uh, you want to have that. Could I have that? Dorcas challenges us to live in such a way that our good works and deeds of love continue to be valued and cherished long after we're gone. I want there to be stories told about me or about Leslie by our, our kids and our grandkids to maybe our great-grandkids. I want what we do in this life to matter maybe even more to those who come after us. My grandma had a plaque that, that I've saved. Um, it was one of the things I wanted. And on the plaque, she always had it hanging. It says, it's just a, a little kind of a poem thing. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And this life is transient. I was at the airport and I was talking to these people waiting for the flight. And they were all so worried about uh, the sickness that is going around. And they were talking about somebody who died and somebody who died. And others had their own opinions, you know, how this whole thing is going. But uh, this one gal was so worried, didn't want to get sick. And I said, you know, this whole thing really makes us think about how tentative life is. Only one life. It will soon be passed. One way or another, we'll leave in this world, right, gang? Whether you're leaving it with a mask on, or you leave it seated in a car, or you leave it some other way, you know, we're all leaving this world. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's live in such a way that our good works and deeds of love continue to be valued and cherished even after we're gone. So while Peter was in Leda, Dorcas died. Now I want to point out a couple of things the believers in Joppa did that seem out of place and violate Jewish customs. Now, we're not Jews in the first century, so I just want to explain what they normally would do. It was Jewish custom to bury a body the same day the person died. Why? Well, there was no way to embalm the body, so the, the body began to corrupt very quickly in that climate, and so the body would be washed, and then within hours, the body would be wrapped in cloths that was soaked in resin and uh, 
myrrh and, and uh, other fragrant spices so that it would try to keep the decomposition in one place and uh, keep that awful smell away. This should be going on because look, Dorcas, it's a three, hour, three to four hour walk from Joppa to Lida and from Lida to Joppa. So let's say that's five hours. Dorcas would have died probably three hours before that. I mean, safely, we could say eight to 10 hours has gone on since she died. Her body should have been washed. Her body should have been the process of putting her in the cloth should have begun right away. Remember when Jesus died? It, it was immediate that they took his body down and they would have washed his body and immediately they embalmed his body. I mean, they, they went back and prepared his, his body. So um, they also would not have put a body in the upper room. The upper room was like the guest room. It was your living room. It's a place where you would entertain guests and special company. Dead bodies would be brought in the house, but not in the upper room. This stuff doesn't make sense. Why is this happening? I think the disciples had faith. I think they really had the faith that Peter was going to do something Jesus had told them, his disciples, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And thus far, we'd seen the disciples and Peter do all of that. And now they believe Peter, Peter can raise the dead through the name of Jesus, of course, right? And so they said, hey, there's no need to, to prep her, you know, to wrap her up and, and all to put her in, in a grave. There's no need from that. And hey, we, don't, we can put her up in the guest room, the upper room, because she's going to be meeting Peter. And so Peter comes, it says in verse 40, Peter put them, when he got there, Peter put them all outside. They were crying and he knelt down and he prayed and he said, Tabitha, arise, or, or young woman, arise. Exactly the same words that Jesus said in one of his three resurrections. Again, this is supposed to mirror one of Jesus' resurrections. The difference is Peter kneels down and prays. Jesus speaks the words, right? Young woman, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Wow. What do you think, what do you think that would have been to be in the presence of Jesus and then be called back to earth? How would you feel if you were dead? And then you came back. It would be a bummer. <laughs> you wouldn't say, oh, I'm so glad that I'm back with my family. I'm so glad I missed you guys. No, you wouldn't feel that way. Let me tell you something. And, and these, these stories are anecdotal. They're not, thus saith the Lord. But I'll tell you that this one person I knew well, and I knew she wasn't crazy. She wasn't kind of out of her head. She was a sound, solid Christian, older Christian woman. And she got cancer and she died in the hospital. Her name is Alva Blomberg. I will never forget her name. And Alva, she was a friend of ours. And when she died, when we found out 
that she told us about this experience that she died and she says, I, I went to heaven. And she described what she saw in heaven. And it was glorious. And it's kind of what you hear people say when they go to heaven. I'm not going to say it because I don't want you to have in your brain, you know, what heaven is like when you die. But she saw heaven and she saw the Lord. And they were able to resuscitate her. And she came back into her body. And she was alive and telling us about that experience a few months later. And you know what? What I saw in Alva was it changed her life. I mean, she was safe before and all of that, but that woman was now courageous. Nothing, she was unflappable. She didn't have the kind of fears that I had. She, she, she has a confidence. Oh, the Lord will take care of this. Oh, you know, the Lord is with us. Her hope, I've been to heaven Come back here. I'm in heaven. I know what it's like. I, I'm not worried about anything because the, the worst thing that happened to me is I take another trip and I get to stay this time. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you know, if we could only see eternity, if we could have that experience of, of stepping through the door for a moment and then even if we had to be pulled back to the side, we would live our lives differently. Amen. Come on. We would. Why do we need that experience? When I don't have Alva's word, I have God's word. I have the word of one who died, who was with the Father, rose again, and tells me this is what it's like, and this is where you'll be. I can place my faith and trust in him. Amen. 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 And so through these two great miracles, hey, really, just, you'd say, too great to be true and just hard to believe. But they're true and they did happen. Our faith is built. The early church's faith is built up in the one who is able to raise the dead. He's able to save us through his awesome power. And I just love the word of God. Don't you guys? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus for taking your word and just bringing it to life. It is living, it is powerful, and it always does what you send it out to do. It never returns to you without fulfilling that purpose. So we leave here encouraged. We leave here uh, with that, that peace that you want us to have. And I pray that it wouldn't be taken from us quickly but it'd be something that we mull over and you put deep down in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Praise is rising, eyes are turning. Turn to you, hope is stirring, hearts are yearning for you. We love
The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Why are you persecuting me? 
it is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who art thou, O Lord? See, Paul didn't know Jesus. He says, who art thou, O Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove to be disobedient to the heavenly vision. The Lord Jesus Christ personally chose Paul. And Scripture reveals that true apostles were personally chosen by Jesus, having seen the Lord, 1 Corinthians 9.1. Paul is arguing with the Corinthians, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And then he says to validate that, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And folks, let's not ignore that Scripture reveals apostleship. True apostleship was authenticated by signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians 12.12 Paul says to a church that was endeared towards false apostles, those who disguised themselves as servants of righteousness. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. He saw the Lord. The signs were performed. Paul was a true apostle. 1 Corinthians 12.28 reveals that God has appointed in the church first apostles, then second prophets, third teachers. Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 4 that the Lord gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the reason, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building of the body of Christ. And then don't miss this. Scripture clearly teaches that the church has past tense been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, these Gentile believers in Ephesus, and are of God's household. You're in God's family now. And he says, verse 20, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And you say, why is that so important? Because remember, the church is not a building, but we have a metaphor that the church is like a building. And we see here ultimately that Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. But how is it the Lord builds his church? First of all, it's built on him. He is the cornerstone. But secondly, it's built on the foundation, as he says here, the apostles And prophets. Christ is the cornerstone. He builds his church, which is the body of Christ. And what is the means in which he builds his church? What is the means? It's through the word of God, we see, which was laid as a foundation by the apostles and prophets. Indeed, we see that we are brought into a relationship with Christ through the word, that we, in the exercise of his will, we were brought forth by the word of God, James 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we were born again through the living and abiding word of God. And we grow in respect to salvation through the word, 1 Peter 2, 2. And it is the word that does its work in us, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. 
Therefore, Christ is the cornerstone of the church. The foundation was laid through the apostles and prophets who spoke his word in which we are brought to faith and built up in. The foundation has been set, it's been laid, it's been completed and revealed in his word. Let me illustrate this. Last year, some of you know, we put an addition on our house. And some of you actually helped in pouring the cement when we laid the foundation. Even though it's crooked, it was still laid. It has been laid, and we built upon that foundation. No house has a foundation that they build another foundation and another foundation and another foundation. They lay one foundation, and then they build the house upon that foundation. The foundation for the church was laid by the apostles and prophets who spoke the word of God, and now we are being built up by it by those who teach the word of God as given by the apostles and prophets, which we have in the word. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and it is by his word that we are built up. Let me read Ephesians 2 again. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon, heirs tense, it's happened already, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. Now, if you still don't understand that there's no more apostles and prophets, we see Peter pointing to this fact in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says in 2 Peter chapter 2, after revealing the great glorious word we have that we better pay good attention to, even more glorious than the transfiguration that these apostles saw, we have the prophetic word made more sure. In contrast to that, 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, but false prophets also arose among the people. That was in the past, just as there will be, not false prophets, but false teachers among you. False prophets in the past when there were prophets in the church. False teachers now when there are teachers in the church. And in Revelation, we know ultimately that there will be two witnesses who prophesy for 1,260 days, but otherwise there are no prophets and apostles anymore. The foundation's been laid. It's set. There are no more apostles of the Lamb, and anyone who claims to be an apostle of Jesus Christ is a false apostle. Anyone who claims to be a prophet is a false prophet or a deluded person. Indeed, we had someone who came to this body when we first started who came and said he was a prophet. And we didn't just say, get out of here. We went through the scripture with him and showed him these scriptures and went through each verse and each passage and was patient with him. And ultimately, he had to make the decision whether he would believe the word of God or believe his feelings. And he chose his feelings and he left. And at the point, there's a point where we would say, you need to leave. Anyone claiming to be an apostle is a lying, false apostle. The foundation's been laid. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but I'm happy to sit down and discuss it with you. But when all is said and done in Revelation 21, there are only 12 apostles of the Lamb. Revelation 21:14, and the wall, speaking of the New Jerusalem, the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them, interesting, they're foundation stones. Do you see it? The significance? And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. If you go to a church that has apostles and prophets, go to these men, and if they're willing to listen, share the word of God with them. And if they don't repent and repudiate their apostleship or their prophetic status, get out, run away, and get into a biblical church. And by the way, if you have people claiming this type of authority apart from Scripture, 
Most likely it is the tip of the spiritually destructive iceberg. So the apostles were chosen personally by Christ. They saw the risen Lord. They laid the foundation of the church by declaring his word, which was revealed to them. And now we are being built up, brought into the kingdom from what they declared, which we have written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we are being built up by that same word. What else can we observe from our passage now? Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Just simply, Paul was Christ's apostle. He was his special emissary on a divine assignment from Christ. He took his marching orders from Jesus Christ alone. He spoke what Jesus revealed to him, not what he wanted to speak. The Apostle Paul certainly understood that he was not his own. He had been bought with the price, the precious blood of a lamb. In this simple statements in verse 1, we have that Paul is a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was called and sent by Christ to do his will. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, Scripture reveals, is the head of the church. And folks, just a little side note. So often we forget who the head of the church is. Ephesians 1 speaks about Christ being raised far above everything that he gave him as head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 5, 23 through 27, speaking of the marriage relationship, giving the example of Christ. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Colossians 1.18, he is also the head of the body, the church. And when you think of that illustration, what is it that controls our bodies? It's our heads, right? Our heads are what controls our body. Paul was Christ's apostle. There's the body that's us, there's the head that's Christ. It's a pretty simple truth that's greatly ignored in churches these days or disobeyed flat out in our evangelical culture. And let me illustrate this again. Does the physical body take its commands from its toes? Does the physical body take its command and direction from our rears? Does it take its command from our fingernails? It's an extreme example, but it takes the commands from the head. Our bodies are controlled by the head. And when the brain ceases to control our bodies, we have disaster. And I've shared this illustration before. Take multiple sclerosis, a horrible disease. When the brain no longer controls the body because of pathways that are broken, the nerves become damaged and broken. When the brain ceases to control the body, there is disaster, which is obvious to everyone who sees it. And in the church, we see churches that are not controlled by the head, and it is obvious there is something terribly wrong. Have you ever seen a chicken with its head cut off? Running around, flapping, gyrating, that's what we see these days in many churches. Fundraisers, seeker-sensitive services, auditions for talent, gourmet coffee to entice non-believers, every type of ministry program to fit every type of need, sermons about the Word, or books, worse yet, but not the preaching of the Word of God. How did we get there? Not holding fast to the head. Colossians 2.18, let no one defraud you of your prize. People are going to defraud you of your prize. In delighting in self-abasement, and the worship of angels taking stand in his visions, which he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshy mind. And then we see, and not holding fast to the head. 
from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. We need to hold fast to the head. Paul was Christ's apostle. Does your life resemble a life connected to the head? Are you the Lord's bond slave? Lastly, we see Paul was an apostle by the will of God. You say, I don't see that in this passage, but it's interesting. In 1 Corinthians 1, 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 1, Ephesians 1, 1, Colossians 1, 1, and 2 Timothy 1, 1, we have this statement, ultimately, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, by the will of God. By the will of God. You say, what's so important about that? That just about every time he identifies his apostleship, he says, by the will of God? Paul was not self-appointed. He didn't decide to get apostolic training at the local seminary, neither did he take a spiritual gifts test to determine the best fit. He was an apostle by the will of God. Concerning Galatians 1, one pastor writes, let's be careful. Paul didn't take his career test to see what he'd been good at and discovered he'd make a great apostle. God made an apostle purely by a sovereign choice. And it talks about him being on the Damascus Road, and we read about that. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, For you heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, try to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. The Apostle Paul was an apostle by the will of God. He understood, as I read in Second Timothy earlier in the service, that Christ had appointed him. From the day that Paul was saved, everything revolved around Christ and doing what he had called him to do. To live was Christ, to serve his body. To die was gain, to be with him. Paul understood, as we'll see next week, what God had called him to. I want to ask you, do you know what God's called you to? Do you know how he's gifted you? As each one has received a special gift, employ it as good stewards. Everything was centered around Christ and what God had called him to do. Do you know what God's called you to do? Do you know how God's gifted you? Paul identifies right away. I'm a bondservant of God called an apostle. This is who I am. This is what I do. Do you know what God's called you to do? Paul fully understood his gifting and calling. I want to ask you, are you living in the context of what God has called you to do? Do you desire to know what God has called you to do? If not, you're just spinning your wheels and wasting his time. But we have the word of God. We know what God has called us to. And the Apostle Paul is a wonderful example of that. I want to ask you, are you living in the context of what he's called you to do? Or if you don't know it, just tell him, I don't know, Lord. I'm sorry, I don't know what you've called me to do. I'm sorry. And then seek him and seek his word to understand what he's called you to do. Obey what you do know he's called you to do to start with. Take it with the simple areas of scripture that you know you 
understand, like loving your wife or submitting to your husband or not forsaking fellowship, continually being with the body. Do the things you know are true. Some of you are believers and you are like my cousin John, aimlessly passing through this life, strumming your way through. Folks, this shouldn't be the case. You shouldn't day in and day out continue as a believer and not know what God has called you to. Just confess it. God has made it clear, first of all, that we are his slaves. We've been delivered from a cruel taskmaster of sin, the domain of darkness, and we should praise him for that. Maybe there's some of you who are still living under that taskmaster. You're a slave to sin, you feel guilty about it, you can't stop it. I declare to you the good news today that if you repent of your sin, turning to Christ, calling out to Him to set you free, He will set you free. You believe that God raised Him from the dead, that He died for your sins, He'll set you free. Well, what about us who believe in Christ? We need to know and remember that we are His slaves. Therefore, we need to do what He says. If he's given us his instructions in his word and you're not in his word, you're not a good slave. We need to be in the word of God. Jesus said in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Are you doing what he says? I'm not talking about perfectly, a desire to do it. We mess up, we confess it, but a desire to do it. Paul fully understood his gifting and calling. Are you living in the context of his gifting and calling for you? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame and I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of loss
Till my trophies at last I lay down And I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for a We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.